0: A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 272 Life in New Amsterdam. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey.
2: Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today, we're turning our attention to New York before it was New York. It's founding by Dutch traders in the early 17th century as New Amsterdam.
1: What we are about to describe is a place that no longer exists, an extraordinary world that's a little bit like a fable, populated only with Native Americans and a few hundred Europeans making their way onto a an untempered landscape of rolling hills and churning rivers.
2: That certainly is no longer the
1: case. (laughs) Yes, And yet, this Dutch port town, which never had more than just a few thousand inhabitants, sits at the very core of New York City history.
2: Now Greg, this probably is not the case for most of our listeners, but many people today forget that even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why'd they change it? I can't say. People just liked it better that way. (laughs) Now, of course, this is a subject that we have touched on on many different shows before. You know, it's usually that point at the beginning of the show when I say to Greg, but first let's rewind all the way back. Well, today we're we're rewinding all the way back to New Amsterdam and we're just staying there.
1: (laughs) For two shows, for this is part one of our exploration of life in New Amsterdam.
2: The 17th century characters that we're going to be meeting today. Henry Hudson, Peter Minuit, Peter Stuyvesant. They might all be giants of New York City history. So join us as we go way back
1: before the boroughs, before the mayors, before the revolution, and before even the British and sail into the Dutch company town of New Amsterdam.
2: Even old New York was once New
1: Amsterdam. Why they
0: changed it, I can't say. would just
1: liked it better that way. Take me back
0: to Constantinople, no, you can go back
1: to... Now, before we begin, I want to preface by saying, by hoping, that many of you have listened to episode 206, which is our story on the history of the Lenape, on the original Native people who lived in this land. Because We're going to speak about many of the same events that we spoke about in that show, but this
2: time we're telling them from the Dutch perspective. Right, the Lenape show, the original Native New Yorkers, uh was from the Native American perspective. Yes, and much of that
1: show took place in this time period. They're meant to be companion programs, so perhaps after listening to this one, head back and listen to episode 206. Now, Tom... Mm Mm-hmm. Are you going to rewind all the way back? Well, I'm actually going to start in a different place. I'm going to start with the official seal of New York City, which was adopted in the year 1915, filled with symbolism from New York City history. There's a Dutch windmill in the shield. There is a Native American on one side and a European colonist on another, and atop it is an eagle representing the American Revolution. But there is something very unusual on this, especially as a representation of a huge metropolis like New York City. There is not one, but two unusual creatures flanking a shield in the center of the seal. Wait, there's a seal? No, no, no. I'm sorry. The seal has creatures on top of it. The two creatures are beavers. To the Dutch, the original European settlers, the beavers were the first and foremost representation of the region. In fact, the foundations of our whole city here, Tom, were built not on solid stone, but on beaver pelts.
2: No less than an entire metropolis (laughs) built upon the poor shoulders of beavers. That is a lot of pressure to put on those small animals. Sure, sure. But seriously, why is New York's economy and future success and future grandeur built upon beavers.
1: Well they wish it was the appreciation of their of their skills in nature, but the real reason is that they had extraordinary coats. They were Fairly easy to capture amongst those coated creatures in the wild, mm-hmm. and they posed little danger to hunters. Now, foxes and bears, they also had very desirable coats back in the day, but of course they were a little more a little diff- trickier. <laughs> a little difficult to pursue. Beaver coats became much desired, in particular, in this fashion craze of beaver felt hats, it was and were the rage for almost 300 years. Many of these fine men's hats Mm -hmm. were made of beaver pelts. Yeah, and and you could use beaver pelts for all sorts of
2: luxury apparel. But surely there's no shortage of local beavers, right, in in Europe. I mean, they could just, you know, shoot local, right? Well, yeah,
1: but there was great competition in Europe to capture and skin these beavers. So much so that in the Netherlands where we'll be spending some time here, beavers would become almost entirely extinct by the 19th century. And in many countries, these populations were wiped out entirely.
2: Okay, so so what finally then brought those beaver trappers over here to the, to the New World? Well, it's interesting because the New World was a bit of a surprise
1: for many of these European nations. By the 15th, 16th century, these European powers england portugal spain they were looking for sea passages to the far east to india and china and they were sending out explorers to close this long distance gap and of course enrich their countries
2: they were they were looking for a route to china they weren't looking for
1: beavers they weren't no And in their search for that much-desired route, of course, you had the continents of North and South America in their way. So these first explorers who landed on these shores, the very first Europeans, would send back to their home countries or the countries that hired them, send back descriptions and examples of life of this strange new world. And in this way, through one particular explorer, the Dutch discovered... The beavers, the
2: North American beavers. I heard you say one explorer in particular Mm -hmm. um, who may have been sailing not for his home country, but from his hired company. I think you're probably talking about Henry Hudson.
1: The namesake of our Hudson River and and many other places in the New York area. Now, on this landmass that would be the United States in the far, far future, Europeans had already been making contacts and even small settlements here by the late 16th century. The English, for instance, had first settled the ill-fated Roanoke colony in 1585 and later built a fort in Jamestown in 1607, both in the future colony of Virginia down south. Now, closer to the future New York region, the Italian explorer Giovanni di Verrazzano sailed into New York Bay as early as 1524. But it would be the English explorer Henry Hudson and his voyage on behalf of the Dutch that would set in motion
2: their permanent settlement in this area. And Greg, you did a solo show for the Bowery Boys about Henry Hudson Mm -hmm. and his half moon Mm -hmm. um, many, many years ago. (laughs) Yes. But perhaps you could give us a very quick overview
1: of what his story was. A very, very quick overview. So in 1609, Henry Hudson sailed from Amsterdam on behalf of the Dutch East India Company whose objective was to find a trading route to the East Indies. Now, this is a term that they used to describe South and Southeast Asia in those days. For several months, he sailed along the eastern seaboard, then decided to retreat back north, heading into what we know today as New York Harbor on September 11th, 1609. Now, there were a few altercations with native people who lived along the shores of this beautiful forested area and going so far as even capturing two Lenape people.
2: The Lenape, or the the Muncie-speaking native people. Yes, those had lived here for generations. Now, as we know,
1: Hudson came upon this wide river, which seemed to flow deep into the interior of this strange land, but he then soon realized that it was no waterway to the East Indies. Now, today we call that, of course, the Hudson River, although, Tom, do you know what the Dutch called it? They obviously didn't call it the Hudson River they would call it the Mauritius River in honor of Maurice, the Prince of Orange and the leader of the Dutch Republic.
2: Orange, you glad they didn't give it a different name, Greg.
1: <laughs> I believe it's more properly pronounced Orania. So anyway, Hudson reported back to the Dutch about the relative ease of navigating this river
2: and the, quote, friendly and polite people that lived there. So he came into contact with the Native Americans living around here. What else, Greg, did he find? Well, among the many lists of benefits to this new land,
1: quote, many skins and pelts could be found here. Now, to be fair, North America's rich abundance of beavers and foxes and other beasts had already been discovered by the French, but they were actually farther north in what we called Canada today. So there was no competition here in this region. And so the Dutch prepared
2: to swoop in. They smelled an opportunity because let us not forget that he wasn't sailing for the nation. He was sailing for a private company, Mm -hmm. a company that was thinking about where the biggest business opportunity was to be had. Of
1: course, the New World had other material treasures that the Dutch would soon deem valuable, such as timber, And then, of course, the Dutch would pursue other business ventures in the Atlantic itself, principally tobacco. And unfortunately, which we'll talk about a little bit later, they would be a principal part of the transatlantic slave trade. So following Hudson's voyage, the Dutch sent subsequent explorers, namely those helmed by the sea captain Adrian Bloch. He came actually to the New World at least once a year between 1611 and 1614.
2: So we have Hudson, who explored here on the block, but neither of these two actually set up a permanent settlement for themselves. No, no. Uh, In fact,
1: in 1614, Bloch returned to Holland, having mapped to the best of his ability these lands, and joined with several other businessmen, and received permission from the Dutch government to form the New Netherland Company, and were granted exclusive trading rights to this area.
2: Oh, so in 1614, they're granted the right. And then what? They just headed off uh, back over to North America and set up New Amsterdam? They did head back to create a new settlement, but
1: not New Amsterdam. In that year, 1614, in fact, they had managed to construct a fort called Fort Nassau, later Fort Orange, on a small island outside of today's Albany, New York. So further up the Hudson River, and for many years, this would be the only Dutch outpost in this area. But as the years progressed, and as they did have finally a presence in this region, their relationship with the native people of the land matured and got a little bit better. Meanwhile, while that's going on, this political truce, and we're not we're not getting <laughs> to international politics with this with this show, but I but there was a truce between the Spanish and the Dutch that ended in 1621 and that required both countries to have increased presence here in this new world region right so it required the dutch to like put a little bit more energy behind their new netherlands settlements in order to protect them yes and you know this believe it or not this this broken truce actually brought more financial opportunities via
2: privateering for instance and shipping Mm -hmm. Well, so that's relations with Spain. But meanwhile, in the same time, don't we also have the British setting up colonies in the Northeast?
1: Oh, right. I forgot a little, a minor <laughs> settlement. that the, Small uh, detail. A, an English settlement of another foothold. By 1620, the Puritans had settled the Plymouth colony in the future colony of Massachusetts by this point. So these international relationships are now being carried over in this new playing field of the new world. It's really time then for the Dutch to kick this up a notch, you know, to like throw some more resources in this and to develop and protect their their quote-unquote territory. And so in 1623, they formed the Dutch West India Company.
2: West India, that is to say sailing west from Holland mm-hmm. and finding what, the today's Caribbean um and the and the eastern shore of the United States. Yes, the D- Dutch West India
1: Company was principally concerned with those bodies of land in the Atlantic. This would be a government-chartered merchant body that would fuel growth into this largely unexplored world of the New Netherlands. And so they need settlements to get these businesses rolling and to start a settlement, you needed
2: settlers. And the first settlers arrived in May of 1624 aboard the ship, the New Netherland, which was under the direction of Captain Cornelius May. They arrived on May 20th and set out to establish their first settlement on a small island off the tip of Manhattan in New York Harbor, which they called Noten Island or Nut Island. Of course, today's Governor's Island. Mm. And so who were these settlers? Were they from the Netherlands? They came from actually all over Europe, but many in this first group were Walloon refugees. That is they were these they were French-speaking Protestants who had sought refuge in the Netherlands during the religious wars. They however ironically, didn't really feel that welcome in Holland. And so they looked toward North America for a new beginning. You know, they they had originally petitioned the British, actually, to head over and to settle in Virginia and their settlement there. But that offer was rejected by Great Britain. And so they petitioned the Dutch West India Company to head over to their colony. You know, it's
1: really interesting that to set up a brand new settlement, you need people who are kind of already uprooted from their from their own original
2: homelands right. right yeah because the the locals you know many people might be surprised that these people weren't really Dutch who came over the first batch of 30 families or so but the you know the locals were pretty happy back in Amsterdam and in the Netherlands you know the economy was flush it was their golden age in the 1600s and they even had a wonderful social safety net I mean I'd kind of like to live in, you know, Amsterdam of the 17th century right now. (laughs) Well, have you been recently? It's it's pretty (laughs) much like it's pretty much captured in time. That's true. It isn't that hard to imagine (laughs) when you visit Uh Amsterdam today. But those who came over, they didn't have a whole lot to lose. They had a lot to gain, in fact, uh, because they had a deal with the West India Company that, in exchange for their own labor, uh, for a period of six years. The company would repay them by granting them land. So they had an opportunity here. But even though they were sort
1: of refugees, Mm -hmm. they were still employed by this company. They were
2: going to form a company town. Yes, and that is a very important point to make here because these settlers, they weren't looking to establish their own religious-based colony you know, like the others that you've mentioned, they were heading to work for the Dutch West India Company. They were employees. And this meant that the company set all the rules. They called all the shots, you know, uh, that these settlers were expected to trade with the Native Americans on behalf of the company. They were raising food, really, on behalf of the company and to, you know, feed the other people who were working in this company town. Weirdly enough,
1: this is almost like a 17th century version of a 21st century tech bubble. These, you know, these massive company towns that are like in San Francisco or on Silicon Valley.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and similarly, the Walloons had like all you can eat sushi buffets at lunch. (laughs) Nitro cold brew. Oh, on on tap. tap. (laughs) Totally. All the time. It was the rage. But no, they, they did manage to get some representation. Um, there was a five-person board of advisors to the company director. But the company director reported back to Amsterdam, to the company bosses back in Amsterdam. Those were the people who were really in charge here. And unfortunately, given the realities of communication, it would take months and months to send messages back and forth between this new company town and the bosses back in Amsterdam.
1: So all of these families, these Mm -hmm. Walloon settlers, they arrived, they
2: landed and set up shop on Nutten Island? No, sorry, the first group was sent off to settle all over New Netherlands. The idea was that people, they had to send their settlers far and wide to, you know, start trading with the Native Americans, but also to kind of claim the land.
1: Oh, right. I mean, that makes total sense. That was the whole purpose. is to plant virtual flags, essentially, throughout this whole region.
2: Some of those were red flags, but we'll get <laughs> yeah. to those later. Eighteen families were sent up, uh, sent up the North River. By this point, they were calling today's Hudson River, the North River, and... Um, 18 families were sent up the North River to Fort Orange, which you mentioned, near today's Albany, while others were sent down the South River, today's Delaware River, and others up today's Connecticut River. But there was a small batch of settlers who stayed here on Noton Island because they didn't really, you know, require that much space at first, and it was also easy to defend. But they had an obvious problem here as they they did want to grow the settlement here And so they had to abandon this rather nutty strategy. (laughs) But for now, they farmed, they traded with the Native Americans. And later that year, they sent back a ship to to the Netherlands that was absolutely packed with pelts. The next spring, more ships arrived with supplies, farm animals, um, new settlers, and a new director who was taking over for May named Willem Verhoest. Varhust. Yes. But he's not in the picture here very long. He had some issues, didn't he? He was not, as it turned out, a very popular leader. Um, He might have, in fact, been a criminal. But he did manage to move the settlement from Nut Island off to the southern tip of Manhattan where he and his military engineer also constructed Fort Amsterdam or the, the very first version a rather rudimentary version of Fort Amsterdam that was meant to protect them from any number of people, including other colonies uh, who might, you know, head down and attack and try to take over the land.
1: So this is the the seed of New Amsterdam here. Mm -hmm. Um, But meanwhile, there are settlers all over the place all
2: over New Netherlands making a go at it. That's right. Although most of them would be recalled down to the southern tip of Manhattan to New Amsterdam in 1625 because of a rather unfortunate decision to get involved in intertribal warfare between two Native American tribes. The company chose sides in a battle between the Mohawks and the Mohicans, which resulted in the death of several settlers, and it also resulted in the consolidation of settlers back down into New Amsterdam. Meanwhile, their leader, Verhulst, was not beloved, and his council sent him back to Amsterdam the next year in 1626, and he was replaced by Peter Minuit, who was also a Walloon. Oh, he wasn't Dutch. <laughs> he was Walloon. Uh, remember, French speaking. And that also has left scholars such as Russell Shorto mm-hmm. in his book, The Island at the Center of the World, to point out that his name was probably pronounced Minuit because it would have been pronounced the French way. Mm-hmm. But Peter Minuit, if it resonates
1: in people's minds, is perhaps because of the famed purchase of Manhattan. Those were air the... quotes Greg just <laughs> lifted <laughs> yes. into the air from the
2: native tribes. Right, and that occurred in May or June of 1626 when Minuit had just arrived and decided to kind of like, you know, sign some kind of a treaty or agreement with the Lenni-Lenape tribe, famously paying them 60 guilders worth of goods, which is something that we go into great detail in our Native New Yorkers podcast that we did two years ago. Now, as we pointed out in that show, of course, you know, the the two parties here, the Lenape and the Dutch settlers probably had most likely had very different understandings of what that transaction meant uh, because Native Americans were not really accustomed to the idea of land belonging to anybody Mm -hmm. in the first place. So it's likely that they understood the deal as some sort of a lease or a shared land agreement between these two parties. Whatever the case, um, Manhattan was certainly not purchased for $24, (laughs) uh, which is a a legend that traces itself back to a calculation done in the late 19th century.
1: Now, Tom, in preparation for this show last week, I took... A train up to Albany and yes, visited you did. and visited it was so exciting I visited the New Netherlands Institute and New Netherlands Research Center on the seventh floor of the New York State Library and met with the director Charles Gehring and his researchers and librarians Now they oversee and translate the massive collection of documents from the Dutch period we'll talk more about them in our next episode but while I was there, mm-hmm. this was so exciting. I got to actually see one of the most important documents in early American history. And that is a letter that first described the Dutch purchase of Manhattan, which was received on the Dutch side on November 1626. According to the letter, yesterday the ship, the Arms of Amsterdam, arrived here. It sailed from New Netherlands out of the River Mauritius on the 23rd of September. They report that our people are in good spirit and live in peace. The women also have borne some children there. They have purchased the island Manhattan from the Indians for the value of 60 guilders. They sent samples of their summer grains, wheat, rye, barley, oats, buckwheat, Canary seed, beans, and flax. The cargo of the aforesaid ship is seven thousand two hundred and forty-six beaver skins, and it goes down the line of other skins, otters, mink, lynx, and muskrats.
2: The ship also included, quote, many oak timbers and nutwood. And and why this document is important. It's this inventory of this cargo mm-hmm. that was received in the port here in Holland uh, that we learn that the agreement or sale was valued at sixty guilders. Yes, this is the earliest evidence of that transaction. And you actually got to see this document? Yes, they
1: have it. They have it framed in their research center, and anyone can visit. It's the it's in the library.
2: So a big shout out to the New Netherlands Institute and their research center up in Albany. Once signed, uh, Minuit and his chief engineer, Fredericks, they ramped up their construction on the island. They built dozens of cabins. They built a counting house, a mill. And at this point, New Amsterdam was home to about 300 people. However, New Amsterdam was also home to something of an identity crisis, because what was it exactly? Was it just another commercial outpost for the Dutch West India Company like they had scattered elsewhere? Or was it something deeper? You know, was it meant to be a settlement of these brave individuals who risked everything to head off to a far-off land and, and who desired some kind of autonomy? That answer depended on who you asked. And if you ask the Dutch West India Company, they would tell you to get back to work. But what was life really like
1: here in New Amsterdam, here at the very first days of the settlement? We'll get to daily life and the further adventures of New Amsterdam after this.
2: Today's show is brought to you by us, Greg. Yes, the Bowery Boys, Tom and Greg. (laughs) We have a couple updates on Bowery Boys-related things that are taking place um, that we are so excited to announce First of all, we are very excited to announce that we're just weeks away from taking the Bowery Boys podcast into the streets of New York for our newest venture, Bowery Boys Walks. You listened to the show, you've read the book, hopefully, now it's time to walk the talk. Bowery Boys
1: Walks will be launching with its very first tour called Landmarks and Legends of Broadway,
2: and we'll begin those walks in early October. We've worked with and developed this walk with our good friend Jeff Dobbins, who is a a tour guide and he's a writer, but he also has decades of experience working in New York's theater industry. So Jeff will be leading this stage door tour through Broadway's incredible history. And this is just... Tour number one. Mm-hmm. We'll be rolling out
1: a few more tours in the very near future. So, for more information and to be the first to sign up to this tour, it's going to be so much fun. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. So, that's number one. That's number one. Number two is a brand new spin off podcast of sorts mm-hmm. hosted by the two of us. It's called the Barry Boys Movie Club. That's right. And so every month, we'll be taking on a very iconic New York film, whether it be filmed here or set here. And then we'll be talking about that movie, and many of them will be films that you've seen, and we encourage you to also watch those movies. We'll announce them a couple weeks ahead of time so that you can watch them, follow along with us. And we won't just be talking the movie, although it'll be a very opinionated discussion, We're also going to be looking at it from a historical perspective, looking at both the history of New York as it's presented in the movie and sometimes how the history of the making of that film relates to New York City history.
2: And now here's the thing. Um, You won't find the Bowery Boys Movie Club by searching for it on iTunes or Stitcher. This will be a show that's available only to our patrons. This show, this exclusive show,
1: will be available to all of those who support us on Patreon. Now, when you when you sign up for Patreon, you'll actually get a little audio link that is a private link mm-hmm. that you just cut and paste into whatever podcast player you happen to have and then automatically those shows just go into your player and so this show will pop up starting next week with the movie are we announcing the movie here announce the movie so our inaugural film in the Barry boys movie club will be martin
2: scorsese's taxi driver so there you have it. You have a week to watch Taxi Driver. It shouldn't take you more than two hours uh, <laughs> before you sit down and listen to us put it in some kind of historical perspective or just kind of talk about it, what we thought about it, you know? To join the fun, to head to the movies with the Bowery Boys, head over to patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash uh, And you can sign up there and just join in the fun.
1: And finally... We get emails all the time from businesses wondering how they can advertise on our podcasts. So we're now making it simpler than ever. Just send us an email at ads, ADS, ads at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We're setting up the calendar for the next six months right now. So it's a great
2: time to reach out to us. And we love working with all kinds of businesses. You know, we, we have really large advertisers, but we also work with you know small New York-based uh, mom-and-pop or one-person yeah. shops. And it goes without saying that we have the smartest... And, and definitely the most attractive <laughs> audience out there.
1: So email us at ads at boweryboyspodcast.com. And now, back to New Amsterdam. So you left us in New Amsterdam in the late 1620s, near the moment of its inception. Mm -hmm. Over the next several years, from there until 1642, there are a lot of leadership upheavals, which we will get to. Okay. But I want to spend some time here in New Amsterdam. I'd like to describe life in New Amsterdam, at least life before 1640. What was it like to walk around... This brand new settlement, you know, today, when you go down to lower Manhattan to the financial district, the lower part of the financial district, that area which comprised New Amsterdam, it's so small, actually, it's very easily walkable. But the problem is, is today that area, it's so Concentrated. It's it's all either skyscrapers or historic landmarks, and just a, a billion Wall Street people and tourists. Pretty so much it's, right. It's
2: <laughs> kind of disorienting if you're trying to reimagine how it was in the 17th century. Yeah, so. it's it's impossible, right? But if you have the ability, the power to to sort of take all of that away mm-hmm. and to look anew and afresh, yes, at lower lower Manhattan. Where specifically was this settlement located? In terms of this settlement, eliminate
1: anything above Wall Street. So if you you have a map in front of you of Manhattan, Mm -hmm. just literally rip away the entire map except the little part from below Wall Street down to Battery Park. (laughs) There were were many Dutch people in other places, and we'll we'll get to that. We're only speaking about New Amsterdam. Let me quickly add... That there is, on the north end here, although it's called Wall Street, in the 1630s, there was no actual wall. This is pre-wall. Pre-wall. There were fences, like small fences, that, that separated individual properties, but there was no northern border Defense.
2: Okay, so this was before the funding for a wall.
1: Yes, the people of the settlement believed that water-based attacks from rival European empires were more likely, and so thus that's where the defense was.
2: Ah, so that's why they they positioned Fort Amsterdam uh, at the southern tip of the island. Mm-hmm. Fort Amsterdam
1: was the first structure as you as you mentioned and also still the largest structure here in New Amsterdam remarkably its footprint of where it actually sat you can almost see it today it's almost perfectly preserved because it's where the Alexander Hamilton US Custom House is is sitting i mean so that was built oh, in 1902 wow. but it's pretty much the same spot
2: on the site of today's National
1: Museum of the American Indian so just erase that Beautiful building from mm-hmm. your mind and instead put a four sided earthen fort here with bastions on each corner, you know, where you could launch artillery defenses. So it was a square fort inside of the fort would eventually be barracks, a church, a warehouse for valuable goods. And then the director general of New Amsterdam would also live inside the fort. Mm-hmm. Well, believe it or not, the original idea was to have everyone live in the fort. But, you know, in the 1630s, relationships with the native people of the area were very amicable. And so the fort was eventually redesigned and settlers of New Amsterdam were then allowed to conduct most of their business and then live outside the fort. Uh-huh. So in, in essence, it's because of the kind mostly genial relationships with the Muncie-speaking people of the region that actually
2: allows New Amsterdam to thrive. Okay, so I'm trying to picture all of this in the southern tip of Manhattan, but I know from our other shows that our Manhattan of today includes so much that has been built up by landfill into the the bodies of water around it. So what was the actual shape of the island at this (laughs) point? Yeah, it's... it's somewhat easy to imagine the original
1: coastline because the on the east riverside let's start there the shoreline was today's pearl street okay so meaning that there's many streets that actually are fur- further east than pearl street you have water street front street and south street those are newer streets and the other thing to remember is that they are even straight streets because they were artificially made however Pearl Street follows along the original shoreline. So if you want to go back to the Dutch days, walk northward on Pearl Street and you'll notice that it's uneven. It dips and dives and wobbles in various different places because it echoes the original shorefront of New Amsterdam.
2: That is so cool. And what about the the southern tip of the island around, you know, today's Battery Park?
1: Yeah, Battery Park is pretty much all landfill in fact it's relatively recent landfill in the scheme of things only from the mid-19th century is when most of it was was added
2: oh that's right let's remember that castle clinton the ruins of which are still there today was once out in the water
1: yeah although there was a very interesting land feature around the area of the staten island ferry terminal today there was actually a rocky ledge a land protrusion that was actually there called capsca or Schreyer's hook This was also where the public dock was. And so because of this, this area also got another name called Weeper's Point. Weeper's Point. Because it's where the public dock was, this is
2: where families would gather and weep as their loved ones were set off to sea. Oh, because back then you really didn't know when the next time you might see your loved one, I mean, if there, ever.
1: Yeah, I mean, there may be people who call the Staten Island Ferry Weepers Point today. I don't know, <laughs> but back then it was when you when you sent someone off to sea, there was a, a great likelihood that they would never return.
2: And what about on the western side? What was the the shoreline into the north or the the Hudson River? Yeah, you can see a
1: little bit of where the original coast might have been because it ran along today's Greenwich Street. Again, if you look at Greenwich on a map, it is also a bendy road. and was straightened out a little bit in the 19th century, but for, a, for the most part,
2: it's kind of an echo of the past. So again, looking today, Battery Park City, the highway, all the docks on the west side, none of it was there. But again, considering that all of this stopped at, say, today's Wall Street. Yeah, around there. You've really just described a pretty small piece of land. I would say it's a 10-minute
1: walk from the northwestern point of this area down to Weeper's Point. Even as late as 1640, there were still about just, you know, 300 people, give or take, that were living here.
2: Which is approximately the population of an apartment building in today's Battery Park City. Now,
1: life in New Amsterdam was concentrated around the fort. There were a lot of individual private homes, but they were built on small streets immediately surrounding the fort. And most of them on the northeast side on the East River. Between Fort Amsterdam and these private homes, however, there was a large Machtveld or market field. As more and more Dutch farmers tended properties outside of the city, they they would bring in the wares for sale. This would be near the area that today we call Bowling Green. This open area in front of the fort would, not surprisingly, be a parade ground once they got some troops here,
2: and would later be a cattle market a cattle market that is positioned right here at the bottom of this very wide, this broad way, this broad street, <laughs> yes. which would become Broadway. Breedweg mm-hmm.
1: or Heerweg Long Highway. It is the widest street in the settlement and the farthest west. And it's built from a Native American path that once ran through here. Now, all the, although the Dutch do Create some of their own streets, many of them are based on pre existing paths. In fact, the biggest ones and some of the ones that we still are, that are modern roads today, are based upon Native American paths.
2: But before we leave Broadway, I want to talk about the windmill. Of course, because aside from wooden shoes and tulips, um, (laughs) there's nothing more Dutch than a windmill.
1: There was a windmill here sitting in front of the fort it it was built here in the 1630s and it did serve a function it powered their mill it wasn't just for postcards but all of this typifies the dutch character of of new amsterdam and would only grow as the as the city gets larger and richer early new amsterdam is actually unusually international this was a company town, mm-hmm. after all. And while the original Walloon settlers did have religious and political motivations in settling here, that was only one aspect of this company town. You know, this was not a homogenous place. Because it didn't have a religious framework, unlike the Puritans up north, well, let's just say New Amsterdam could be a more festive place, especially, you know, especially at night. Are you suggesting here that there were drinkers among the settlers? Well, beer brewers were especially honored among the citizenry here. In 1633, the fanciest building in town was the town brewery. <laughs> well, But to be fair, it was also the cleanest way to drink dirty water was to drink
2: beer. The cleanest way to drink dirty water. Got it.
1: In the earliest days of New Amsterdam, people didn't really even fence in their livestock. So as a result, pigs freely roamed around the street. There was obviously no sewage or trash system. You just got very, very familiar with your neighbor's waste very, very quickly. The earliest houses here around the fort were made of wood and given the antiquated methods of cooking and heating, and it could get very cold, as we know, during this period, yeah. um, the houses frequently caught fire. But there was no sort of organized way to put out these fires. So it could be a very dangerous place in these early years. They, they The Dutch could sometimes be their own worst enemy.
2: But when I left this story in 1626, Peter Minuet had, had signed that deal, inked yes. the deal, uh-huh. Is he still around by the 1630s? Well, strangely,
1: he was recalled back to the Netherlands in 1632 for reasons that are, remain rather unclear. He was very displeased by this. So displeased, in fact, that he went to work for Sweden in setting up their first colony, appropriately called New Sweden, uh-huh. in 1638. Minuet was replaced with a man named Wouter van Twiller. You know, he is often painted as one of the worst leaders this region has ever seen. And that's saying quite a bit. (laughs) But to be fair, I'll give him a little credit. He did acquire additional lands with deals with Native American people, um, including most of the islands of the East River. So Randalls and Ward's Island and Roosevelt Island were were acquired by the Dutch West India Company during this period.
2: But didn't he try to acquire them first for
1: himself in oh, certain situations? Uh, well, yeah, that is true. He was no angel. We're gonna step past his his uh, frequent drinking that he was known for, because I think that everyone drank a lot back then. But he a, a lot of his bad reputation comes from the fact that he he attempted to enrich himself on top of the company, and actually when he was released from service in 1638. Van Twiller was a very wealthy man from all these sort of side deals. In fact, he actually built himself a farm or rather a tobacco plantation in the area of Northwick, which we would later call the West
2: Village. Uh-huh. Was- but Van Twiller was acquiring these new parcels of land in these islands. Was he also placing settlers on those lands in order to kind of, you know, settle them? Well, it was important
1: for the company to get settlers on these properties to defend them and to lay claim to them. In fact, New Netherlands once had the land of Connecticut, but lost it during the Ventriller period because no one was settled upon it. So Mm -hmm. it was very important to get a few of your representatives there to at least lay claim to it.
2: But pulling back here for a second to New Amsterdam, was the town getting larger at this point? Well, there weren't like too many more people coming over. It wasn't
1: increasing in population. But, you know, there there were families when they arrived and they had babies. So now they have children. So, for instance, by the mid-1630s, the first schoolmaster came over from the Netherlands, to to live and work here in New Amsterdam. In 1637, New Amsterdam even got its first practicing physician, Johannes de la Montagna.
2: You mean up until this point, there hadn't been a doctor? (laughs) There had been, like,
1: ship's doctors. There had been people who picked up little things. But there was not a practiced physician in town until this moment, which is a stunning... Yeah, I mean, that is a real... That's a real booster (laughs) for New Amsterdam.
2: A real Um, shot. A real shot in the arm.
1: (laughs) Now, some of the more unpleasant work in the colony, of course, was being done by a small number of enslaved people. Now, I say small only in comparison to the number of slaves that the English would later bring to this colony when they would take it over. The Dutch profited handsomely from the transatlantic slave trade through Brazil. But here, New Amsterdam, still at this time, was just a little outpost. And even through 1664, so carrying over into our second part of our show here, there were only two slave ships that were reported to have sailed into the harbor at all. Now, the slaves who would come here would occasionally win their freedom or a half-freedom and settle their own
2: farms. But in the 1630s, there's an unknown number of enslaved people, many of whom were living in slave lodgings that had been built well outside town along the East River. But you did mention that Van Twiller had some issues, some perhaps character flaws, mm-hmm. flaws that were not overlooked by his directors who took action in 1638 and they fired him and, and they replaced him with a merchant named Willem Kieft. Now, Kieft was another interesting character. His only qualification seemed to be, for for this job, seemed to be that he had connections to the bosses back in Amsterdam. And he comes over and takes over this company town that is in a state of total disrepair with a rather rough-and-tumble, disorderly Mm -hmm. crowd of inhabitants. According to the book Gotham by Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, During his first year, Keeft oversaw, quote, "...40 criminal cases involving slander, theft, assault, adultery, rape, and murder." And Greg, there weren't even that many people living there. No,
1: that's stunning.
2: But remember that most of the people, even though there were families, there were children, most of the people living here were men. And most of them had been willing to set sail, you know, after the Walloons came over. There were more who came over who were just sort of seeking their fortune. They had little mm-hmm. to lose. Now, was Keith able to whip this town into shape a little bit? Well, he tried to institute a kind of like law and order campaign. You know, think Giuliani circa 96, <laughs> if you will. You know, he was passing new laws to curb drinking. And, and he mandated work hours to make sure that people were actually working. And he also started to buy up land around New Amsterdam and to to start officially granting land to people who had put in their time, which led then to a sort of early real estate market as land started to be bought and sold by the inhabitants of New Amsterdam.
1: And I assume this must have been attractive to others who may have wanted to settle here.
2: And even people who were not interested in working directly for the Dutch West India Company. You know, there were people now coming over who were setting up homesteads and farms and trading with the inhabitants of New Amsterdam or trading directly with the Native Americans. That's because in 1640, the Dutch West India Company, they abolished their monopoly on trading activities within the colony and they opened up trade so that settlers could now trade as they wished. These are positive strides
1: towards building a healthy community. (laughs) Yes.
2: But what's the problem with Kieft? The first problem with Kieft is that he was kind of a jerk. Each passing day, he found himself increasingly unloved by those whom he led. Kieft blundered his way into terrifying and bloody wars that lasted for years with the local native tribes and cost thousands of lives. And this was, you know, following years of really good relationships yeah. and trading relationships with the native people who inhabited this area. I mean, that's New Amsterdam wouldn't be able to be this
1: present size if they didn't have a friendly relationship with their neighbors.
2: And the whole colony was built upon that trade in the first place. So it was also really bad for business to go to war with the people who were a vital part of that trade. Mm -hmm. For the Native Americans, you know, their world was now changing beyond recognition. Settlers and not just the Dutch, but others were transforming their land and making it harder for them to, to farm or to hunt. And furthermore, on the Dutch side, the Dutch West India Company now had new competition. You know, there were others who were trading directly with those Native Americans, including those from other colonies. And then meanwhile, to complicate this even further, there was intertribal warfare that had been going on for about a decade by this point, the same warfare that had that had led minuet in the 1620s to recall everybody down to New Amsterdam. Th- those conflicts were still going on at this point. So, so in 1639, Kieft steps back, looks at this situation, and decides that what he needs to do is please his bosses and make more money for the guys back in Amsterdam, who are getting nervous that this outpost in the New World is becoming increasingly dangerous. And unproductive so he decides to levy a tax on the Native Americans in the region he would force them to pay New Amsterdam in wampum and in other goods for their quote-unquote protection from other tribes did all the tribes go along with this arrangement no many of them ignored this new mandate and, in fact, many of Keith's own advisors had warned him against this. Because, unsurprisingly, it led to increased tensions between New Amsterdam and the local tribes. And, finally, two years later in 1641, things snapped out on a farm on Staten Island. This happened when the Dutch accused the Raritan tribe of killing or stealing pigs on the farm of one David de Vries. Now, This was also a tribe that had refused to pay New Amsterdam for its protection. So Keefe took action. He saw an opportunity here, and he sent in a huge group of soldiers to handle the situation. They killed three or four of the Raritans in the most brutal of fashions. We don't want to even go into those details here. It led the Raritans to fight back, killing four of the people on the farm and burning the farm to the ground. Well, this confrontation became known as the Pig War and looking for, you know, some kind of advice, perhaps for the first time, Keefe formed a council of 12 men to advise him on, on how to handle the situation. And this is very notable because it's the first
1: time that the townsfolk really have a say finally in how things are being governed in town. This council first convened, perhaps not surprisingly, at a tavern around the area south of Stone
2: Street today. They advised him to calm down and to forge peace with the Lenape uh, because these these advisers, these men, were terrified of war and they were upset with how war with the Indians would damage their own business. Did Keefe take this advice? What, What did he do with the recommendations? He pretty much ignored them. And so unsurprisingly, within two years, in in 1643, things got much worse when two tribes, uh, the Tappan and the Waquisgeek, traveled down to New Amsterdam because they were looking for protection from the Mohicans uh, who had launched an attack on them. And these two tribes
1: had been promised protection by New Amsterdam, by William Kieft,
2: protection from this rival tribe, the Mohicans. But instead, Kieft now saw an opportunity to attack them in retribution for previous murders on Dutch colonists. So, on February 23rd, 1643, he sent in New Amsterdam's troops to attack them, these two tribes, as they sought refuge at encampments in Pavonia on the western side of the Hudson and off at Corlears Hook. These Dutch soldiers brutally killed 120 Native Americans that day, including women and young children who were literally ripped from their mother's arms. These brutal acts did not stop the conflict. Instead, the various tribes in the region rallied and formed um, a united front against the Dutch, And they would attack the Dutch in much greater numbers. That fall, in fact, in 1643, 1,500 Native Americans attacked villages and farms throughout New Netherlands, including the one that was owned by Anne Hutchinson and her 14 followers. And Kieft fought back, killing another 500
1: so this escalation, these attacks and counterattacks over and over again would carry on for years and would be known as Kief's War.
2: Yes. And all the time back in New Amsterdam, conditions were just deteriorating because farmers had abandoned you know, their farms and their villages in the New Netherland countryside. And they had sought refuge down in the fortified city of New Amsterdam they were scared they were they were seeking safety many of them boarded ships and headed back to holland and by that point keith had actually recruited another council of eight advisors and finally in 1645 a truce ended the conflict well keith
1: has not exactly recommended himself as an exemplary leader of new amsterdam either by this by this point
2: no his his time was up uh, the colonists were done with him. They were finished. That Council of Eight that he had formed, they petitioned Amsterdam to to replace him as quickly as possible, which didn't seem to them to be a terribly hard sell. Um, I found a passage uh, that of the letter that they wrote to Amsterdam. They said, quote, "...our fields lie fallow and waste. Our dwellings and other buildings are burned." Not a handful can be either planted or sown this autumn in the deserted places. The crops, which God permitted to come forth during the past summer, remain on the fields standing and rotting. There are among us those who for many long years have endeavored at great expense to improve their lands and villages. The whole of these now lie in ashes through a foolish hankering for war for all right-thinking men knew that these Indians have lived as lambs among us until a few years ago. These hath the director, by various uncalled-for proceedings, so embittered against the Netherlands' nation that we do not believe that anything will bring them and peace back unless the Lord, who bends all men's hearts to his will, should propitiate them. This sounds like... The Dutch
1: West India Company needs somebody that they know and someone that they can trust, someone who is basically like an immovable force who can change the destiny of New Amsterdam.
2: It sounds like they needed
1: Peter Stuyvesant. In our next episode, the second half of the epic of New Amsterdam, we're going to talk about the The man who changes the course of New Amsterdam and thus also the course of New York City history. The man named Peter Stuyvesant.
2: To see images and maps of the people and places we've talked about on today's show, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A huge thanks to our patrons. Get ready for the Bowery Boys Movie Club. That'll be next week. So thank you so much for joining us in New Amsterdam.
1: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
2: See you real soon.
0: Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful?